Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So it's a tradition in my house that we read the Christmas story together every Christmas morning, and I'm delighted to share that with you guys. Um, it's also a tradition in the Reformed faith that we stand when the Bible is read. So, since it's only seven verses, if you're able, please stand with me as we read God's Word. This is the Word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to, the, to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and, raid, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for Christmas and what it means and, and what we can reflect on this morning. I pray that you would be with us now as we hear your word and as we speak of it and as we seek to understand it. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would come and illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would be speaking this morning and not me, because we desperately need your words and not mine. I say these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. So Christmas is a pretty exciting time. It's a time of the expected and the unexpected. This morning, I'm sure as well as this afternoon and this evening, we've all opened presents and we all will open presents that we either thought we were going to get, that we had no idea we were going to get, and that we loved, or maybe we didn't. I love to watch old Christmas videos of my brother and I, because you can tell which presents we were really excited about. Or you can tell the presents that we weren't very excited about. It was usually socks. We never really liked getting socks. But you could always tell the ones that we expected or didn't expect as well. Well, in the same way, whenever God chooses to work, especially around Christmas, it's usually in unexpected ways. And he usually does unexpected things. And whenever he works, you and I, as his people, should do three things. We should seek to look for the ways that God works in unexpected times, through unexpected people, and in unexpected ways. We see this first point in verses 1 through 3 of Luke 2. So Luke begins by telling us about the birth of Christ. He, he, in this first chapter, told us that the angel Gabriel, he came to John the Baptist's parents and announced John the Baptist's birth. And then he comes to Mary and announces Christ's birth. Um, we also see that Gabriel spoke to Joseph in Matthew's account um, during the time of John's childhood. And during that time, Jesus is born. Luke does us a favor also. He tells us the historical setting of when Jesus was born. Because without Luke's account, we really would have no idea when it happened. So he tells us that it was while Augustus was emperor of Rome and he issued a decree to register all of the Roman world. Now, there are a few important things to notice about that. First off, who in the world is Caesar Augustus, and why is he important? 
Well, Caesar Augustus, his name was Octavian, and he was the first Roman emperor. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And in the year 27 BC, he ruthlessly put down any opposition to his rule and became the emperor. And after doing so, and after putting down all other opposition, the Roman Empire entered something you might have heard about in your freshman world history class. It's called the Pax Romana, which means world, or Roman peace. So it's one of the closest things to world peace you actually get. Now it's peace bought with the Roman spears and swords, but it's peace throughout the empire. And so during this time, there seems to be peace on earth. Now, Augustine was, Augustus was held as an emperor who brought peace to the whole world. Now, if you look at verse 1, you'll see that it says, all the world should be taxed. I know in the NIV it says, uh, all the Roman world, because the words actually mean all the inhabited world. What it's showing is that in the time where people lived, because the Roman Empire, it was most of the world at that time. And at that time, there, was, there seemed to be peace, because Augustus ruled, and he conquered Pretty much everything. But Luke isn't just showing us when the birth of Christ happened, though that's important. He's showing us something else. He's contrasting this man, Augustus, who seems to rule over the world with a small peasant baby that's about to be born. To understand that, we're going to look at Augustus just a little bit more. So the name Augustus is a title, and it means holy or revered. Now that's something the Romans only said of their gods. Now, if you know anything about Caesar or Rome, you might know that Caesar was held as a god. And so Augustus, as his adopted son, was the son of a god to Romans. And he eventually was considered a god himself. So, this is the start of Roman cult worship of the emperor. This is something that Jesus is going to talk about later in his ministry and and speak against, but this is where we see it starting. Augustus was also called the savior of the world by the Romans. So you can see how Luke is saying, you see who Augustus is. The first century Jews would have known exactly who Augustus was. They would have known exactly who Luke was talking about. And now he's bringing in Jesus to the story. He was called the savior of the world because his rule brought peace through conquest. Not only that, look at verses 1 through 3. He says, all the world should be taxed. And the entire world jumps and moves. Look at his control over the Roman world. He says, jump, and they say, how high? He moves when they tell him to move, or when he tells them to move. Augustus is being contrasted with the one true God. He's, he, so at the word of God's mouth, the universe was made, all the stars and planets. At the word of Augustus's mouth, the whole Roman world moves and gives him money. This is, he's being shown by Luke as the Romans consider him God. And this registration would have shown Roman ownership over not just the empire, but Israel. And that was reserved for Yahweh alone. Now, why am I giving you a history lesson on Christmas? I know what you're thinking. Talk about Jesus. I'm I'm getting there, I promise. But the point is, whenever God chooses to work, it's at a time when we often already have a God for ourselves, and we don't think we need another. You see, why Augustus was a God of peace that the world had. Why did they need another? Augustus had brought the Pax Romana to the world, one of the closest things to world peace. Why did they need a Messiah, a Prince of Peace? This is what the world must have been thinking. 
Augustus seems to have control over everything. I mean, he says move and the whole world moves. Why do they need a God who's in control of all things? That must have been the thoughts running through people's minds. And the thought that often we have whenever God chooses to work in our hearts and our lives is, why do I need something else? We already have our spouse, our kids, our money, our jobs, our sports team, our cars, whatever it is. We already have these things. Why do we need something else? See, that's the thought that we have because we think maybe God isn't needed. But we also have another thought. A lot of the times when God comes to work, it seems rather inconvenient for us. Let's just think about this for a moment. Imagine today if uh, the president said we had to go back and move to our own hometowns. Now, some of us are from Clover or Gastonia, Charlotte. It wouldn't be that hard. A little inconvenient, but not that hard. Imagine if you were from New York, Chicago, Nashville, California, Alabama, wherever. It would be so inconvenient and almost impossible for you to pick up your life at that minute and walk out the door and go until they knew where all the households were. See, that's what, was being, that's what was being said to these people. It seems rather inconvenient for God to work at this time. Often when God chooses to work, like I said, it's, it seems unexpected, and it seems inconvenient. The sin that he's choosing to address, we hang on to very hard because we just don't want to let it go. Because we're holding on to the peace of this world. But you see, the peace of Augustus was very, very lacking. That's why in verse 14 of chapter 2, it says, peace on earth. See, God's making a statement. He's saying the peace that you see on the earth is not what you need. The peace that the world gives us is lacking. It's superficial. It's usually won by violence and by intimidation and by our sin. You see, the world's peace will let us keep our sin as long as we accept our slavery to sin. The world's peace will, the world will give you peace as long as you're enslaved to your desires and your wants. That's the price of this world's peace. You see, though we might think that God's timing is inconvenient or unexpected or too early or too late, it's always exactly when God planned it from the beginning. See, God's providence is actually what is moving the people of the earth and causing all things to happen. God wanted Augustus to make this decree because it was going to fulfill a 605-year-old prophecy that we read this morning. He had made a promise to the city of Bethlehem that Christ would be born there, and he was going to fulfill his promise. So he, he makes the conditions perfect for Christ to fulfill this prophecy. See, it isn't Augustus or the world or us that are in control of the world and its timing. It's God. His timing isn't convenient, it's not useless, and it's, but it's perfect. So it's, it seems like sometimes God is an unexpected visitor in the middle of the night. Imagine you're laying there, you're nice and warm in your bed, and then you hear 2.30 in the morning. Hard night. You're just getting to sleep. You don't really want to get up, but you keep hearing, and you think, maybe it'll go away. Maybe I don't have to have to do anything, but you keep hearing it. So you get up, you wrap yourself in warm clothes, frustrated, you open the door, and it's your neighbor. Maybe they are locked out of their house. Maybe they need sugar. I don't know. But they're there, and they're at your door at 2.30, and they're asking for your help. So after a little bit of arm pulling and twisting, you, you go outside and you help them, not very happily, but you help them. Sometimes that's the thought we have with God. God seems like an unwanted guest 
who just shows up in the middle of the night. Because often we're comfortable. We don't want to change. And we definitely don't want the hard work to change, especially if it means giving up some of our sin. That's sometimes the thought that we have. Now, that's not always our thought, because Christ does redeem us, but at times it is. Instead, we should remember that God is all-knowing, and He is in control of all things. He has better timing than all the clockmakers in the world. He knows exactly when we need Him and exactly when we will actually listen to Him, and that is when He chooses to work. So whenever He does choose to work at the unexpected time, don't feel inconvenienced. Don't feel like it's unneeded. Remember, he knows you perfectly. He knows exactly what you need, exactly where we need to improve to be like Christ, because we all need that. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you embrace the timing of God and accept the either tough or the easy changes that he may be bringing in your life. But we also see that God chooses to use unexpected people. Luke pulls his focus in in verses 4 through 5 from the entire Roman world to two people. These are two seemingly unexpected people, Mary and Joseph, that he chooses to have be the parents of the Christ. Let's look at Joseph first. He's a man who lives in Nazareth, and what we hear about Nazareth in John's gospel is it's a no-name town. No great prophet is from there. Um, it seems to have a reputation of nothing good coming from it, and it's just this insignificant little village. You never hear about it in the Old Testament. So it seems like Joseph is a country bumpkin, from a no-name town, just working his job as a carpenter, and then an angel shows up. He's a nobody in the eyes of the world. He's not rich, he's not famous, so the eyes of the world aren't on him. But if you were to later today turn to Matthew's gospel and you read chapter 1, it's a, it's a genealogy. And what you see is that Matthew is the descendant of royal blood. He is the son of kings. And there's one interesting name there. It's Jeconiah. Now, if you go in the Old Testament, you'll see Jeconiah was cursed. And God said, none of your offspring will ever sit on the throne of David. So, let's look at Joseph again. He's apparently a country bumpkin, a no-name carpenter from a no-name town, and he is from a cursed line. The thought that should pop into our heads is how and why would God ever use a man like that? See, God redeems this man's past by having Jesus be his adopted son. See, since Jesus isn't his biological son and he's adopted, he's an heir to the throne. Just as Augustus was the adopted son of Caesar, Christ is the adopted son of the king of Israel. And so he becomes the true king. He has a legal right to the throne. He is our king, truly and rightfully. See, God uses the people that we deem to be unfit by our standards to, do, to show the wonder and the mercy in his great redemption. He redeems us, people who hate God, people who, have, who are by no means worthy of serving him and being used by him. And what does he make us? <clears throat> Excuse me. Elders, deacons, preachers, Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, moms, dads, <clears throat> excuse me, grandmas and grandpas. It seems to be God's habit to choose the people that are least likely in man's eyes to do the greatest things in God's eyes. Now we look at Mary. Mary's about 12 to 14 years old whenever she marries Joseph. And she's pregnant with Jesus. It's the custom then to get married at that time because 
well, you die around 50. So she's an adult in their eyes. And so she's married. And we know by verse 5 and in Matthew's account that they're newlyweds whenever they go to Bethlehem. So we also know that they're poor. Because if you look later in Luke chapter 2, they offer a sacrifice. And it's the poor people's sacrifice because they can't afford a lamb. So they give two turtle doves or, or two pigeons. So not only that, but remember, Mary still, even though Joseph married her, was pregnant before she was married. And in the eyes of the people around her, she was an unfaithful wife that was taking advantage of Joseph's kindness. Now, that's not what she was, but that's what the people saw her as. She was also a very humble lady. Whenever Gabriel comes to Mary to announce Christ's birth, she just submits. She humbly says, here's the maidservant of your Lord. And she goes about doing what God asks her to do. Even though it's going to be hard, even though it'll be very difficult, she does it. Though she seemed like an unfit mother to the people around her, she's a model of humble submission to our God and King. Now, this ought to show us, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter who you are, you are usable by God. A lot of the times we say things like, ah, it's just not the right time. I don't have any money. I don't know the Bible at all. I'm just so sinful. God cannot use me. If you were to go through the Bible... And if you were to look at the people that God used, you would be amazed at the sinfulness of those people. Moses was a murderer. Gideon was a coward. Samson was a hothead. David, the man after God's own heart, was an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. And John the Baptist had doubts about Christ being who he was. You are no more sinful than they are. Beloved, you and I are not the first people, the first sinful people, that God ever chose to accomplish his will on this earth. Your sin is not so great that his sovereignty can't use it to bring about his purpose. You cannot mess up the plan of God with your sin. He is greater than our sin. Think about Augustus, a pagan king who who wanted nothing more than money in his pocket. And what did God do? God uses him to make the conditions perfect to fulfill a prophecy he knew nothing about. God uses this man who has no good motivations to bring the Messiah exactly where he needed to be. Take heart and trust in the God of redeeming grace. No matter how sinful we are, he is greater than our sin, and he can use us. He used a pagan king, a seemingly unfit carpenter, and a teenage mother to bring Christ into the world. He can use me, and he can use you. So in the 1800s, There's a man, and he seems to be the most unexpected leader you could ever think of. A short history of what he did. He had three years of formal education. He goes into business, and he fails. He runs for legislature, and he's defeated. He goes into business again, fails. He runs for legislature again, finally gets elected, but he's defeated for speaker, for elector, and for Congress. Um, He does get elected to Congress once, and he's defeated again. Then he runs for House, shot down. Vice Presidency, shot down. For Senate, shot down again. This man's name is Abraham Lincoln. And he was the 16th President of the United States and arguably one of the best. He, no one expected anyone to use that man the way that he was used. I mean, look at that pedigree. It's not very impressive. 
And you may think that your life is just a string of events that make you unworthy to be used by God. You may think that you're ill-suited to the work of a Christian. Beloved, take heart. We all are. But God chooses to use us. That's the greatness of God's grace. Though we are unfit and unworthy, Christ comes and he dies for us to make us able to be used by God. So don't let your past or your sinfulness stop you from being used by God. Whenever, whenever we say that God can't use us because of our sinfulness, we doubt the power of the Holy Spirit and we doubt God's redemption in Christ. You see, no matter who you are, no matter what your age is, no matter where you are, God can use you. But also remember that God cleans the tools that he uses. He will not leave us in our sin. If we are used by God, then he will, by the Holy Spirit, make us more like Christ. <clears throat> Seek out places to be used by God, whether it's in the nursery, Sunday school, youth, children's church, an elder, deacon, whatever. Look for places to be used by God. There are many places that he wishes to use you, whether it's in your classroom, your lunchroom, your kids' school, wherever. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Look for the places that God desires to use you and follow his call and be his instrument. So lastly, we look for Christ to come in unexpected ways. Look with me at verses 6 through 7. Luke finally tells us about Jesus' birth. They were in the city of Bethlehem during this registration for the census. And Mary is about to have her baby. It says that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Luke describes the birth of Jesus very shortly and very simply. He says that whenever Christ was born in verse 7, that, she was, that he was her firstborn son, and, he wrapped, and she was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals, and because there was no place for them in the inn. And there are a couple of interesting things to remember. Joseph and Mary have traveled 80 to 90 miles on foot, maybe with Mary on a donkey. That's a long and a hard, slow journey to make with a wife who is so pregnant she's about to give birth. And not only that, but when they get there, they possibly had a place to stay, but now it's full. So when they're there, there's no, they're scrambling for a place to stay. The town is filled with people who have to have a place to stay until the registration is over. So the inn, now that's, that's something to think about too. It can either mean a hostel or a hotel, a place where you could go and pay for a room, or most likely what it is is uh, just a guest room, because the word means guest room. So what likely happened was this, that Joseph and Mary arrived, and they had a place to stay, but the, place is too, the guest room is too full. And so in those days, in peasant homes, there were two levels to houses. One was where people stayed, and the next one was where animals stayed likely built over a cave or something like that. So the owner of the house says, well, I don't have any room up here, but welcome to stay with the animals if, you, if that's okay with you. So they choose to do that. Now, whether it was overcrowding or whether it was he just didn't want a newborn baby born with all those people around, the family of Jesus is pushed into an animal stall. What a terrible place to give birth around animals and everything that goes with animals. Jesus is born, and Mary wraps him up, it says in verse 7, in swaddling cloths and lays him in that feeding trough. She wrapped him so that his bones would stay straight and stay together because they're weak after birth, and also to keep him warm. Now, to the rest of the world, this is just an ordinary birth of a peasant kid. 
to poor peasants. But there's something else going on. Now, the fact that Jesus is Mary's firstborn son shows that it's the first kid. It shows that he has the right to the inheritance of his family and that he is the legal heir to the throne of David. That's important because that's what the Messiah is supposed to be. The Messiah is supposed to be the king from the line of David. And the Messiah is here as a helpless little baby in the feeding bucket of donkeys and oxen. Now, this was a curveball to the Jewish people. It shouldn't have been because God had told them about it from generations, but they didn't listen. They had a different plan for the Messiah's coming. They wanted Jesus, they wanted the Messiah to be a conquering king who came in on a white war horse and threw the Romans out of their country. This was the leading idea of what the Jew thought the Messiah should be. But what a change-up God throws on them. Not a conquering king, but a humble one, as a baby, in a manger. You see, oftentimes, we think we know exactly how Christ should fit in our lives. We have the exact place for him. But what happens is God comes, and he skips over our plan, and he does his plan, because his plan is so often better. And we get angry at him for that. How dare he do that? This is my life. I'm in control of my life. I get to decide my future. Christ comes to show us that you and I are not in control. God is the one who directs the world. This may be our life, but God rules over it. God is the one who directs everything. We make real choices and we make real decisions. But God plans the future. Because as a certain Christmas song that I like says, it says, Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands? That's exactly what Mary does. As she swaddles Jesus up, she is swaddling the creator of the stars, of the universe, of galaxies. And he's lying in a feeding bucket. That is amazing that he would do that. As Kyle said last night, this sleeping child that you're holding is the great I am. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, was a baby. He took on human flesh. That should amaze us, because that is amazing. Last, last quote. Dr. Kelly, smartest guy I know, smarter than me and everyone else I know combined. He said, we will not feel out of place in heaven because someone with our nature sits on the throne. That is the point of Christmas. God became a man. He has human flesh. The creator took on the created. The almighty God became a helpless baby. The Lord of the universe needed his diaper changed. That is the point of Christmas. He has been where you are in every place of your life, because he is a man, and he will always be a man. He sits on the throne of heaven, and every plan that God makes passes through the nail-scarred hands of Christ because he loves you, and because he feels everything you feel. He felt pain, sorrow, grief, happiness, joy. He had people walk out on him. He had people be with him till the end. Jesus knows how it feels. The Bible says he was tempted with every sin, but did not sin. That should give us comfort, and that should give us grief. Uh, not grief, comfort. Um, so, 
There are two times that Jesus is wrapped in cloths. The same word is used one more time. It's in Luke 23, 53. They've taken him down off the cross, and they wrap him in linen, and they bury him. Even at the beginning, Jesus is making his intentions very clear. It is to come to die for us, to be a sacrifice. They thought, the Jews thought the Messiah was going to be a conqueror, not a sacrifice. But that is what he chose to be. So, Christmas. As much as it is a time of giving and receiving, it's a time of planning. I mean, I know in my house we have to plan when we're going to go to my mom's side of the family, my dad's side of the family, when we're going to get together with my brother and my sister-in-law, and all sorts of things. And I'm sure y'all, like me and my family, have planned out most of the season. And so we're all planning our Christmas Eve day and week, and then something happens. Then someone gets off of work late, someone has to go out of town, just something changes everything up, and it's like a nuclear bomb fell on our Christmas traditions, and they're everywhere, and we have to pick them back up and put it all together. Oftentimes, that's how it feels when Christ comes. We have a plan for our life. But Christ comes in, and his plan is a little bit different. Things are going well, and then boom, Christ decides to deal with the sin that we've been harboring for months. And so it changes things up on us. Instead of scrambling to fix our lives back the way that we thought they should be, back to our perfect plan, we should just embrace this plan of God. Even though it may be hard, even though it may mean a drastic change in our life, it is for our good. Like I said, God's plans are better than us because he has infinite and intimate knowledge of who you are. He is the God of all the universe who is a child. And then who grows up to be a man. Like we said, the nail-scarred hands of Christ are holding the plans of God for you and I. So stop trying to, distract, to direct every point of your life. Instead, put his kingdom first, and he will give everything that you need to you. So in closing, Christmas is a time of the unexpected and the expected. More than unexpected presents and gifts, it's a time of a very unexpected arrival and a very unexpected coming when the God of the universe who holds all things in his hands came, became a man, and he died for us. If you haven't accepted that unexpected gift, please do. It'll change everything. And if you have, embrace God's timing. Embrace his plan and the people that he uses and accept the way that he comes, even though it's often unexpected. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for Christmas. We thank you again for your Son and how he loves us and how he came and how he died for us. Father, I pray that as we go throughout this day and throughout this week, we would have our minds focused on you and we would remember what you have to say to us in your word. Lord, let us accept your timing, the people that you use, and your plan. We say these things in the name of Christ. Amen.